Hello, folks. Welcome to our Platinum and Elite members to yet another episode of Ask an Attorney. I am Kevin Michalowski, not the attorney. This is Tom Grieve, noted criminal defense attorney and former state prosecutor. He is the attorney. You've been so, going noted quite a yeah, bit. Is noted. There, it's, I, this started, I think, about a month ago. Any particular reason why, why we migrated to noted? It seems like you should be famous. I should be famous. Yeah, so... Famous? Yeah. I'll, I'll take famous over notorious, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, that, but that all right. works. Noted. You know, and, and you're just so good at this that <sighs> I have noted how well you, you do noted. this. So, yeah, you are now noted. A Kevin uh, Note. Attorney. Yeah. So, okay, all right. And I'll actually write it down in a diary or something like that so that it's actually written down. Like dear yeah. diary. Dear like diary. Kevin's and, blossoming yeah. journal, you yeah. know. Okay, uh, all right. I noted how well Tom was doing today. So let's get right into this. <laughs> Uh, nobody, nobody wants to hear me no. talk about how great you are. So, um, Jonathan sends us our first question today. Been a huge fan of taking self-defense training from qualified trainers. Good. With street credibility based on military and law enforcement experience. Also good. What I notice is I keep taking more training every year. Everything's going well for you so far, Jonathan. Keep doing that. Is there a point at which too much annual training becomes an advantage for a prosecutor? I don't think so. I think the training shows that you want to avoid conflict, unless you're, you know, not really following your training. But as a prosecutor, if, if somebody had a lot of training, sure, what would you? Does that carry into how you're going to charge something out or look at a report from a police officer? Well, I think for starters, keep in mind that most prosecutors are not gun people. I mean, let, let's just start there. There's always exceptions, but those tend to be in my my professional experience. Uh, few and far between. And again, speaking as a criminal defense attorney at Wisconsin's largest law firm, as well as a former state prosecutor myself. So I think just from, from a starting perspective, uh, if you're worried about being perceived as that gun nut, as that tackle barrier or something, it's unavoidable just because you're concealed carrying a firearm. Um, and I'm not saying that is like, shame on you, don't do it. I'm just saying, look, you're, you're starting. If you're worried about scoring reputation points with these people, good luck, all right? Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of it has to do to me, and believe it or not, I'd have to say that uh, not only the content, obviously, assuming you're getting good training, um, I care a lot less about somebody's pedigree as far as are they military, are they law enforcement, are they this, are they that, as far as is there a written curriculum, because that's what's going to survive the class. Is it good? Are they telling you to do bad things? Are they telling you to do, to, to, to do good things? Um, where does that leave us? And also, crazy as this may sound, how do they market themselves? If they're marketing themselves as learn how to kill any threat, uh, that could create- I would create, avoid that. <laughs> I would probably avoid that for the same reason why sometimes you yeah. hear about people avoiding ammunition that may be packaged and sold for self-defense purposes as the, you know, kill any threat uh, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, it may be a good product in and of itself, but if it causes you problems in court later, maybe a, a good idea to keep looking. And I think it's probably safe to say, Tom, that it, no matter what training you take out there, folks, you're still going to be judged on your actions at the time of the incident. First so, and foremost. Yeah. Um, and, and what we're de dealing with when we're talking about court is, is a trier of fact. People are looking at what the facts are at the time. So the fact that you had training is probably less important than the facts of what you did at the time of the shooting. I'm, I'm assuming that that's what you're looking at as a prosecutor is like, what did this person actually do? Right, that, that should be the number one focus is what did the person do? And if we're trying to split hairs by looking at, well, what was the person's knowledge? What was their intent? What was their training? Not all the time by any measure, uh, but sometimes that might mean that maybe your case was a little bit more gray because something didn't happen the way that we all would have preferred it would have given 2020 hindsight. Uh, training is meant to number one, get you through that so you survive the deadly force encounter, and then number two, of course, to survive the deadly legal encounter that will inevitably follow many uh, many of these cases. So you just have to take everything into account, um, but more training, as long as it's good training, I think can only help you. Yeah, that, that's, that's really good advice. Keep getting trained, folks, because you never know when something's gonna happen and you need to be able to respond effectively. So. Let's move on to the next question here. If I'm involved in a shooting, does my spouse have to give a statement or wait until we speak to an attorney, other than fearing for our life or, or being in extreme danger? So um, I, I believe this revolves around the idea that spouses don't have to testify against each other in, in court proceedings or something like that. First of all, is that true? Can your spouse be compelled to testify against you? The answer is yes, they can be. And for all of you who just took a big gulp, let me explain why and when. 
So we do have a number of privileges in society, right? Attorney-client privilege, doctor-patient uh, privilege. We have uh, husband-wife privilege, spousal privilege, and, and others and so forth, priest-penitent and so on. However, there are circumstances where that can be waived. Now, keep in mind, this is all going to vary slightly from state to state as to how all this applies, but I just want to get you guys kind of seeing some of the landscape that's out there, all right? Generally speaking, we're talking about in communications that are intended to be private. So in other words, <clears throat> God forbid, if my wife Kevin over here uh, and I are dealing with cops and Kevin blurts out something to me in front of the cops, he can absolutely be compelled, or she, I don't know, but, hey, hey. but uh, you know, Kevin could absolutely be compelled to, to repeat that in court. And if he doesn't want to, then he can be impeached and have that statement read in mm -hmm. because... You know, blurting something out in front of cops, that's not necessarily intended as a private statement. Likewise, if you're in custody after a self-defense shoot and your spouse calls you up on the jail phone or you call them and you guys start yakking back and forth on a recorded line, that's not going to be a private communication, assuming you got all the warnings, which every jail, as far as I know in America, gives you that. So just understand that all too often, not only in this subject, but across law, Something that we may think is an ironclad black and white concept actually, for better and worse, has a lot of layers of gray. But long story short, if your privilege does apply, then yes, they cannot be compelled to testify against you. Uh, if it does not apply, then they're going to be treated the same as any other witness. Now, I want to look very closely at this statement right here, um, uh, at, at the question as it came in. It said, does your spouse have to give a statement or wait until we speak with an attorney? A as a police officer, I can't compel you to give a statement if you say you want to invoke your right to remain silent. If you want to wait until you get an attorney... Yes, do that. Get your attorney. Um, I can't make you say anything uh, during an interrogation or even even um, talking to you on the street at the incident. If you want to wait to get your attorney, wait to get your attorney. Um, but uh, what Tom is talking about is then what's happening afterwards at the court level out right. there. So I would suggest, even though I would love to get as much information as I can while investigating any sort of crime... I would suggest that you wait to get your attorney before you make any statement, whether it's a spouse or not. So um, if we're looking at it from that point, yeah, out there on the street, uh, you know, there was a bad guy who was wearing a, a black hoodie sweatshirt and he ran that way and then stopped talking. I mean, that's... In know. essence, yes. And keep so. in mind that inevitably if someone starts talking, if that spouse starts talking, if you had a communication of what was maybe generally intended as a private communication between yourselves and that person starts repeating the conversation, you could be left with a legal conflict as to whether or not that statement does come in. But generally speaking... The most uh, basic and best legal advice that I or any other criminal defense attorney can say, as a former U.S. Supreme Court justice, a little over 100 years ago once said, any attorney, no matter how green, should be able to give their client one piece of advice, never talk to the police. So it may not be the best advice in every situation, mm -hmm. but it's the best generic advice I can give somebody without knowing anything else. And, and this next question just takes, you know, um, actually questions the spreading of the advice. Right. Should a person lawyer up after a shooting? Um, don't you think the investigating officers, prosecutors, grand jury, judge, everybody is, is going to get upset with them and see it as a sign of guilt? Um, you know what? Whether or not I as an investigating officer see it as a sign of guilt really doesn't matter. I'll write it up in my report how I see it. And, and then a prosecutor will interpret my report and take a look at things like that. But... The legal system is complex. That's why we have an expert, a noted defense attorney noted. here. Oh boy. Um, that's why we have an, an expert here. It's complex and it's vague. Get a lawyer to help you. That's the best advice anyone could ever give you. And I don't think I'm off base by saying that. No, you're not off base with saying that other than maybe the noted part. But what I would add is the fact that when we're talking about somebody who's so-called lawyering up after an incident, it doesn't mean that you will never give a statement. I've had clients in actual, honest-to-God, real-life self-defense scenarios where they've had to use their firearm in self-defense where after sifting through all the analysis, they've gotten a couple days to cool off, to eat, to sleep, and all those other things where, okay, maybe they would have gone in. And this is true. They have gone in to give statements at that point. But keep in mind, at that precise moment in time when the shots were fired or maybe you decided to display or point your firearm, maybe that was hopefully good enough, all right? If that's the case, your adrenaline's through the roof. You probably haven't slept already because most encounters happen at night, as we know. So you're probably low on sleep. You probably ate dinner at this point five, six, seven, eight, maybe even ten hours ago by the time you're midway through interrogation and so forth. 
they're not catching you in your best of days. And there's a reason why law enforcement, if they're involved in a shoot, why they're given a cool off period to sleep, rest, rehydrate, eat, and to talk to their attorney to get everything down at once. I think that you should be afforded the same right. And to whoever asked that question, uh, if you want to go out there and low on sleep, high on adrenaline, low on food, water, and all, all those other things, and wire off a statement that could put you behind bars forever, I guess I'd strongly encourage you to think again about that. It's not a matter of you're not being cooperative. It's a matter of you're using the rights that the Founding Fathers fought and gave you. Um, simple as that. Thank you. And you said something about displaying a weapon in, in the answer to that question. And, and John G. asks us, when is it legally defensible to display a weapon to defuse a perceived threat? And I'm going to say, you know, if you're pulling out your weapon, you had better be reasonably assured, you know, reasonably right. believing that you are facing an imminent deadly threat or something is about to escalate. You're going to have to articulate. You're going to have to tell somebody why you pulled out your gun, and you better have a good reason for that. Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, this is a biggie where the laws and the law enforcement attitudes are going to vary a lot from uh, state to state and even county to county within a state. Uh, there may be certain areas in a more rural location where displaying a firearm, and by that, I, when I say displaying, I mean displaying, <clears throat> not pointing, I mean displaying may be perceived very differently than in a more urban environment where that's going to be considered a stone's throw away from actually pointing the gun and shooting at someone. But keep in mind that it may be illegal wherever you are to even display that firearm or more commonly known or sometimes known as brandishing. It's certainly going to be considered some sort of crime to be pointing it at someone, um, intentionally pointing or maybe even negligently pointing. Keep in mind, if I'm displaying the firearm, I'm pointing it at Kevin at this point too, right? So even though the bad guy's over here, my buddy's over here, doesn't mean the prosecutor can't charge me with that recklessly endangering safety felony, which in Wisconsin, 25 years prison, by the way, because I'm endangering Kevin's life, arguably. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of different arguments and nuances. The gist to it is this, is that if you're at the point where you have to pull out a firearm to defend yourself, uh, to, to defuse a threat, uh, you better make sure that, that you're right and that there's really no going back because that's either going to escalate the incident, in my view, that's either going to escalate the incident to the point of an actual deadly force encounter mm -hmm. uh, or statistically we know that the majority of the time, thankfully, the bad guys flee, um, but it doesn't mean that you won't be left with some legal consequences. Holding the legal bag, so to speak, so keep that in mind. Yeah, remember, folks, we're the good guys. We're the ones who are calling the police and standing there waiting for police to arrive and it becomes so much easier for cops to investigate when we're there. Like you said, the bad guys take off running, and now we're left standing there. Okay, i got to explain what happened. You better get your story correct. You better make sure that you are doing everything legally right. um, when, you're, when you're in that situation. Um, next up, John H. wants to know about um, if he has to show his concealed carry permit during a traffic stop here in the state of Wisconsin. Only if there are weapons in the car, or is it a good idea to do that no matter what? I can give a quick overview on that. I am not allowed to ask you here in the state of Wisconsin if you have a concealed carry permit until I know that you have a gun on you. So at a traffic stop, I walk up to the car window, I get to see your driver's license. I can't ask you if you have a concealed carry permit until I ask, do you have any weapons in the car? And you say yes. Then I can ask if you have a concealed carry permit. Um, should somebody show that permit to me? You know, if they hand me a driver's license and a concealed carry permit, I'm just going to automatically assume then, yep, they've got a gun on them. Thank you very much for doing that. But what else do people need to know about a traffic stop like that? Well, you know, we're, the question was posed specifically in the context of, of Wisconsin. And I assume that Wisconsin, like many other states, again, firearms are going to be viewed and handled particularly by law enforcement, but also by district attorneys, courts, juries, you name it. Uh, very differently in an urban area versus a suburban area versus mm -hmm. a rural area. And for folks who didn't know, Kevin's answering this question as well as being an active law enforcement officer himself here in the state of Wisconsin. Um, but we have had uh, chiefs of police here in Wisconsin who said that if they know that you have a concealed weapon on you, mm -hmm. um, whether, it's, whether it's legal or otherwise, they're going to take you out of your car and put you spread eagle on the ground. That leaves me in a really awkward spot as a defense attorney to say, yeah, volunteer everything up knowing that my client's about to go through that. So mm -hmm. this is one of those issues where as a defense attorney, number one, we got to check our laws. Again, this is specifically in the context of Wisconsin. There are certain states, check out uscca.com forward slash laws, laws with an S at the end, to check out the gun laws map of the United States. But there are certain states, I think Missouri comes to mind, where you do have a duty and it is a crime 
for you to not immediately notify law enforcement if you're traveling through that state with a firearm. That is not the case here in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't have a strong, you must do this, you must not do that, um, as long as we're abiding by the law. I don't have a strong, you must always notify versus you must not always notify. To me, I think that some of that's contextual. Short story, if you have, if you're, if you're glove box carrying, hopefully as a backup firearm, but if you're glove box carrying, and if that's where your license registration or your proof of insurance, whatever that might be, I would absolutely notify Kevin, the law enforcement officer, that, hey, I'm about to open up my glove box and a revolver is going to pop out or whatever is going to pop out. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, contextual. Yeah, and, and that's kind of where things get a little bit dicey for cops on the roadside is when that gun pops out without you know being told ahead of time, you open the glove box and, right. oh, there's a gun. <laughs> that's nice. Thanks. Um, I do have to tell you folks here in Wisconsin that on the side of the road, during a traffic stop, a police officer can take your gun from you and take it back to his squad car and run the serial number to see if it's listed as stolen anywhere. Now, I run into some safety concerns with this because, first of all, you're now reaching for a gun. Now, you're going to have a gun in your hand, and that gives you more opportunity to shoot me. If your hands are just on the steering wheel, you can't shoot me. But if I ask you to give me your gun, then I'm asking you to put your hand on your gun, take it out of your holster, and hand me a loaded firearm. Right. And, and my holster's already full. Where am I going to put this gun? Um, so it comes down to officer discretion. You know, based on our training and experience, are we going to check this person? You know, and, and I look at it this way. The, the, the guns on traffic stops that I take and call into the dispatch center to see if they're stolen are the guns that turn up when someone says, no, no, there's no weapons in the car. And, and for whatever reason, there's a search and we find a weapon. When a guy says, yep, I have a gun, here's my concealed carry permit, I'm looking at this person saying he's doing everything correctly, probably not going to be a stolen right. gun. And I can make that, that determination there on, on the side of the road. But do understand that a law enforcement officer in the state of Wisconsin can take your gun, take it back to the car, run it through dispatch, and, and check to see if the serial number pops up as a stolen gun. So if a cop asks you for your gun, you have to give it to them. But it becomes a more dangerous situation when that happens. I'll try to succinctly answer the question from my perspective. Use context and judgment as to when you're going to tell them, when you're not going to tell them. If you fall on one side of the fence or the other of I'm always going to tell them or I'm never going to tell them unless the law compels me to do so, that's fine. God bless. But to my way of thinking, judgment, context. Read the room. Read yeah. the room. That's right. That's <laughs> so. right. All right, let's switch over to some medical questions now. Yeah, oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. so we'll Great. see if, if um, Here we go. Phil wants to know, uh, Phil says, I'm on blood thinners. Do I have to announce the potential to a potential assaulter my condition? Am I legally safe to bear my handgun to stave off any escalation? Um, th this is a new one for me. I, I don't know that I would take time as the assault is progressing to holler, wait, don't stab me, I'm on blood thinners. Um, but it could come in as, as an extenuating circumstance or a reason to use more force sooner to make sure that you're stopping this assault because if you're on blood thinners and, and you get cut or shot, you right. could potentially bleed out pretty quickly. That could absolutely be a big problem. So in the law, something that, that exists out there is something called eggshell skull. Eggshell skull. What that stands for is the general premise is that I'm going to be responsible. If I do something and that person has an eggshell skull. In other words, they have some sort of condition that just makes them really weak and, and really whatever it is, some I, sort of disability. I, I, I need to just ask a question. Uh -oh. where, where I did, didn't name this. I didn't yeah, name where this. Where did this term this come from? This is not my term. Clearly long before I, the political correctness movement. Yeah, th this was 100, th if I had to guess, I'd say 1800s. Okay. And, uh, I, uh, you know, someone got injured, and the whole premise was that yeah. this person had some sort of disability, which made them far, you know, their injury, instead of it being here for uh, a normal, healthy person, so mm -hmm. to speak, it wound up being up here. And the case went, as I recall, the U.S. Supreme Court, and it basically the question was, well, look, an ordinary action under, under this level of, of violence, or I think it was some sort of industrial accident, you know, workplace thing, but whatever, uh, was at this level. But here it's this, and the respondents were saying we should only be responsible for this much. And the plaintiffs, the, the, the attorneys representing the eggshell skull person, I guess, uh, was saying, look, you're responsible for the damages. Uh, it doesn't matter if it normally would have caused this. The fact is that because of, you know, you basically we, we find our plaintiffs, we take our, our plaintiffs as we find them mm -hmm. is, is just what it is. 
And that's part of our, of our underpinning uh, as attorneys, as judges, as prosecutors, is we take people as we find them. And don't get me wrong, we take a look at the ordinary force, the ordinary circumstances. However, we always leave room for the fact that if somebody uh, has disabilities, has disadvantages, particularly when we're talking about medical conditions and so forth, and by the way, the more documented it is, the better, all right? Mm -hmm. um, that that's absolutely can play a factor. Now, do you have a responsibility to shout that to the attacker? No, I've never seen or heard of that happen before, and mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be condescending or smug about that fact, but I'm just thinking here that uh, you know, I've dealt with any number of individuals who've gone through real-life self-defense encounters. None of them, I think, would, if they were all sitting here, standing, standing here in this room, I don't think any of them are gonna say, yep, I had the total presence of mind to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. I could have totally done that while performing, you know, uh, drawing from a holster, or moving yeah. to cover and so forth. I don't think that that's gonna be a realistic standard to hold yourself to. Uh, and I don't think that, or I've never seen a court hold anybody to that standard either. Yeah, now the next part of that question is, am I legally safe to bear my handgun to stave off any ex sure. escalation? So what I've been telling people for years is, is that if you know that you have a disability or something that, that makes you more susceptible to violence or, or more likely to be injured by the person who is attacking you, mm -hmm. that you can use more force sooner. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I was always taught at the police academy. If I have knowledge that this person I'm dealing with is a professional MMA fighter, then I'm going to treat that person differently than I would an 89-year-old lady, you know, on the side of the road. Right. Um, so if you know that you're on blood thinners and that any injury could be fatal, yes, then you can use more force sooner, but it still has to be objectively reasonable and it still has to fit the, the criterion of the situation. Everything has to be objectively reasonable. We're really talking about just kind of coloring around the edges here. You know, are you slightly inside the lines? Are you slightly outside the lines? Keep in mind, at the end of the day, prosecutors have an enormous amount of discretion to do as they will, and it's gonna be up to you and your defense attorneys in order to push back against that. And no one here is saying that that's fair, but that is reality. So I always tell folks, if you have medical conditions, document, document, document. One, two, three, the most important things you can do. Document, document, document those conditions. All right, so let's move on to another training question. What training should a spouse have about what to do and not to do after a defensive shooting incident? I'm gonna say your spouse should have the same training as you so that you guys are both working on the same page. You're both pulling on the same oar, going in the same direction, and uh, what to do or not to do after a defensive shooting incident, that's wide open. From a tactical standpoint, both of you go get training so that you can use team tactics because it's, you know, then now it's two people fighting against the bad guy. Um, as From a legal perspective, again, get the same training so that, that you know what you're going to say to your attorney or the police officers at yeah, the same time. Absolutely, you know, when we get questions, we have folks call into the firm uh, just asking questions about, hey, what should I do after a self-defense shoot? I always tell them, look, if you're married, make sure your spouse knows, or your brother, or your sister, or your mom, your dad, your uncle. Get people that we are gonna be able to communicate and work with on the outside, and who are gonna understand that they shouldn't be talking to the police, they should be talking to their attorney, or to your attorney. Because if you're gonna be in custody, this isn't, this isn't Matlock or some sort of TV show <laughs> where I, as the defense attorney, stroll into the, uh, you know, the sheriff's department with my briefcase and my styrofoam cup of coffee, slam it down and tell the detectives to scram. Uh, I never made it to that interrogation room, by the way, because I got tasered in the hallway trying to get past you know, the front desk receptionist, right? It, Hollywood has done a lot to unfortunately misinform uh, how the legal system works. At the end of the day, keep in mind, and it's so important, I'm kind of stepping outside the context of this question to answer it or just to throw it in there. It's gonna be up to you to raise your own rights. I cannot raise those rights for you. Your spouse cannot raise those rights for you. However, as we mentioned before, your spouses can do something to kind of waive some of those rights. If they start talking to the police and, and repeating private conversations or something else like that, that could create a major issue, all right? Mm -hmm. Now again, in those private conversations, it may be admissible, it may not. As a defense attorney, I would argue that if you made a, a statement to uh, your spouse that you intended to be private, if they try to waive it, it's not waivable, but again, at the end of the day, everybody needs to have the same legal training just as they should the same tactical training so everybody can respond as a team. Very good. Uh, 
Next question up. Nobody attached their name to this one, but uh, I think it's a pretty good one. Um, short answer for this. If I protect myself from a road rage attack by using pepper spray, do I need to call 911? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, you do. Um, if you are in a road rage attack and you use pepper spray from inside your car, yes, call 911, but understand that you're going to be doing it probably through tears. You're going to get some overspray. You're, um, you're going to, that, that pepper spray is going to get on you and in your car as well as on the bad guy. So uh, be ready for that. Be ready to pull uh, yeah. over that car quickly. Yeah. Um, if you have pepper spray and you want to use it as a self-defense tool, I suggest taking a hit of pepper spray and just seeing what it's like because you are going to get pepper spray on you if you use pepper spray. That, that's have, all have friends it. on standby to help you out with the yeah. aftermath. Yeah, <laughs> a big, uh, big bucket of water or a hose running or, or something like that because it's going to be 45 minutes of sheer torment. So, um, Mel wants to know, can it be called displaying or brandishing a firearm if it never leaves the holster? And I, I know I'll let Tom take this after I'm done, but I'm going to say yes in some places. I, I believe it's uh, Massachusetts where even the accidental display of your concealed carry firearm with your permit, you have a permit, and your jacket swings open and somebody sees your gun, that can be charged out as brandishing in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But, you know, here in Wisconsin, can it? Yes, well, it... it Again, prosecutors have an enormous amount of discretion as to how they're going to charge things and look at things, but I think that if somebody's seen your firearm, now in Wisconsin, you had to throw in that little wrinkle, Kev. So in Wisconsin, I would say that, look, if it's still inside my, my, my inside waistband holster, that I just went from concealed carry to open carry at that point. Right. right? So, um, but that's where, again, you have to look at context of, well, am I making some sort of threat? Because if I'm making yeah. some sort of threat to you, and all of a sudden, I don't have a firearm here, but if I, you know, my, swept my jacket back, to display a holstered firearm, a law enforcement officer or a prosecutor can argue, well, he's he's using his firearm in a capacity now because it's part of that threat. Yeah, and so, swing open the coat and say, you sure you want to deal with this? Exactly, you know, and, and we've yeah. had cases exactly like that. So um, I think that's where the context really can can become key. Yeah, and and knowing, knowing your laws, again, we tell you, check your local listings, know your laws, know what's going on around you to make sure that you're not breaking any of those laws. Right. So. All right, Gordon says, my wife and I were having a discussion on defending against a home invasion, and the question arose that if we were sitting outside on the patio and realized that someone had entered our house through another door, what recourse would we have? Hmm, that becomes the gray area of the true castle doctrine. So question number one, uh, is there anybody, do you have children in the home? Is there anybody else in the home, or do we just have bad guys in the home? That's question number one to me, uh -huh. because... If we've got children, you know, toddlers, infants, or, or not toddlers, infants, children, uh, that's a very different circumstance as opposed to, because now we're talking about defensive people possibly, possibly again, as opposed to defensive stuff, all right? Remember that castle doctrine in general, let's back up, anytime that we're going to be using deadly force and we're going to be privileged to use deadly force, keep in mind all these laws vary, check your local listings, but generally speaking, you're gonna be using a deadly force to respond to a deadly threat, all right? Not a stuff threat, a deadly threat, all right? Castle Doctrine, in general, has a list of triggering conditions. Someone's broken into my home, my car, my business, whatever it might be, check your local listings, that if those conditions are met, that now there's a presumption under the law that I am facing a deadly threat. In other words, if I wake up at 2 a.m. to find somebody in my kitchen, I don't have to wait to see a gun to see whether or not they're displaying a deadly threat. If the laws are such that that presumption is met, I can immediately respond with deadly force. Mm -hmm. But you have to be in your home. I gotta be in yeah. my home, number yeah. one. And number two is the fact that it creates a presumption, okay? Anytime you hear that, that P word presumption, it's always followed by an R word rebuttable. In other words, the prosecutor can charge you with that deadly, with that, that homicide, the negligent homicide, the manslaughter, whatever the appropriate charges might be in your state. And if you're thinking, well, I've got castle doctrine, great. Even if, okay, on the surface, it triggered the conditions of, well, somebody broke into my home. And sometimes it says you have to be in the home. Other times it may be a little bit more vague about whether or not you have to be in the home. But at the end of the day, look, you're not really defending yourself. You're defending stuff unless someone else is in there. So that's going to be the big question. Yeah, and, and it doesn't matter if you're sitting on the patio or pulling your car into the driveway and you look in the window and now there's somebody in your house. If you know for sure the house is empty, you're, you're, that's just stuff that you're protecting. 
And for anybody who has been through the justice system on major felony charges, um, and, and again, I'm not trying to be condescending, smug, sarcastic, lib, anything of the sort, but guys, it's no fun watching your personal property be violated. Um, I get it. It's far less fun to be going through the justice system as a criminal defendant on a major felony charge. I realize that it's going to be hard. Um, you know, as, as macho guys, from you guys down the lines, I'm sure, uh, to watch somebody go through your home and you've, you're retreating to the other side of the, you know, the, the woods, the, the street, whatever it might be, as you're calling 911, as you're watching them break stuff, I get it. That's why we've got insurance, and it's going to be way, way, way better to go through that process of filing insurance claims instead of looking at decades in prison. Um, mm -hmm. Think big picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Next question up, uh, the asker would like to know, what questions I should answer or not answer after a self-defense incident? Should an attorney be obtained before answering anything? Um, yes, get, get an attorney. Is there anything that you would tell people to definitely not answer or definitely yes answer? Well, generally speaking, if I've been involved in a deadly force encounter, and kind of as, as Kevin touched on five or ten minutes ago, if the bad guy got away or his buddy got away, um, if I can give, you know, make, model, uh, what, what the person looked like, what were they wearing, what direction did they flee in, yeah, I'll absolutely give that information. We need to get that guy off the street. However, keep in mind that if and when law enforcement finds them, if you think that that person is going to tell the same story of what happened as what you are or your friend or your spouse's, think again. I've never seen it happen. They yeah. always tell a totally different story. And by the way, that story is never favorable to you, all right? Um, but I always want to point out that kind of evidence. I'm pointing out evidence of the scene. You know, if the bad guy was carrying a knife and he dropped it in my backyard, I'm going to point out where that evidence is. It's going to be important to my case to, to preserve that evidence and make sure it's gathered properly. Uh, but beyond those, those bare facts, the safest thing that I can tell you or any other attorney can tell you is don't say anything, grab a lawyer, and just wait it out. Absolutely. So, uh, speaking of lawyers, in a market as flush with attorneys as Chicago, I didn't know that uh, Chicago was flush with attorneys. Apparently. But, uh, yeah. yeah. What criteria should I use to work with one as my counsel? Well, I'm going to say start off and work with the ones that we have on our list here at the USCCA, but what, what makes a good defense attorney if, right. if I'm out there interviewing somebody and yeah. say, you're going to be my lawyer? Yeah, so this is a great question, and you can you run into the same question any given day if you try to figure out uh, who's the right plumber, who's the right electrician, who's the right doctor, the right whatever. We, particularly as attorneys, are in an industry that is saturated with, frankly, meaningless awards. There's a boutique industry of awards companies who just invent the, an LLC in some place, calling themselves the the best whatever attorneys in America, and then they just send out advertisements to attorneys saying, hey, if you want to be on our list of best you know, top thousand attorneys in America or whatever it might be, just send us our 400 bucks uh, and we'll send you a plaque that says that. So that's not to say that all awards are meaningless, um, but unless you're in the industry and you know which awards mean something and which ones don't, uh, and if you did, probably wouldn't be asking this question. And again, I'm not saying that to attack you, I'm just saying that as an observation of reality. So I would generally just start off with throwing out the awards. As a general rule of thumb, people, tend to be more focused in their practice the better they are at something when it comes to law. In other words, it tends to be, not always, but it tends to be that the best family law attorneys are only practicing family law. They're not doing grandpa's will, or real estate closing, incorporating that dry cleaner, handling some sort of probate issue, dealing with immigration, and on and on and on and on. They're doing probably one thing if they do it really well because they probably like it and they can bill more for it. I mean, that's just what it is at the end of the day. So I think a really helpful criteria is to take a look at, okay, what kind of cases, what, what experience do you have as far as active cases? Uh, are you only doing criminal defense or are you doing six other different areas of law? And again, some, there are some very good attorneys who do dabble in you know, three or four or five different areas of law. Those, in my experience, by far are the exception rather than the rule. So number one, I would say ignore the awards unless you know which two or so are going to be valuable because the other literally 100 plus companies out there, meaningless distractions, all right? Uh, but number two is how many different areas of law do they practice in? Uh, what's their percentage of private bar clients to 
public defender clients because that might speak to their reputation. It could also speak to their ability as marketers uh, and, and as business men and women, but I think that could be another helpful distinction because maybe they were saying, well, look, I only do uh, criminal cases. And you find out that the last time somebody actually paid them money to handle their case was five years ago. That can be a little bit distressing. How many times does your case go to, or do, does your, does your firm bring cases to trial? That could be another big one. I know that when I was a prosecutor, if I would see certain names shop up as retained uh, de uh, defense attorneys, uh, that that attorney uh, that somebody shopped for, um, they're never going to bring that case to trial. Because the last time they brought a case to trial was 10 plus years ago. And it's a, that case can be very different as opposed to a case that I know, boy, this criminal defense attorney, they're known to litigate, they're known to do a good job litigating. And keep in mind, here's another wrinkle, is that a lot of attorneys, in my experience, uh, they'll file motions because they're interested in what their client will think of them. They're not really interested in the outcome of the case, unfortunately. So um, you have to be very, very careful. Ask around, look for reviews, look for recommendations, look to see what's the breadth of the practice and how often they litigate. And then really the most important is gonna be to trust your gut. Uh, you are catching that attorney kind of like on a first date. Presumably, they're putting their best foot forward if you're calling them. If you cannot communicate with them, if they're brushing you off and ignoring you, unless they have some sort of major life event of their own or they're in a jury trial, their wife just gave birth or whatever it is, uh, that's, you're probably only going to be going down from there. Okay, So you need to find somebody who seems to be doing a good job uh, at, that you can communicate with because communication is going to be key and vital to the outcome of your case. Let's move on here. Larry, wow, this is a complicated one, but something that we actually just uh, put together in one of our uh, upcoming uh, scenario-based training events here. So you have a flat tire and you pull to the shoulder of the road. Then you encounter three, possibly more, rowd, <laughs> rowd, rowdy, loud, and uh, rowdy, loudmouth hooligans. I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, messed up from making that mistake. All three are twice your size, so that's six times your total size. They threaten you. Uh, we need to know what that threat's going to be. Tom's going to ask some questions about this. Yep. Can you shoot since you fear for your life? You cannot retreat because you have two very young children in the vehicle with you, and the tire is taken off. So, um, yeah, this is an interesting situation. Okay. Uh, again, any use of force has to be objectively reasonable. This is going to be a self-defense incident of some sort, but you can't just pull out your gun and start shooting them because they threaten you. Um, you have to be able to articulate that you are facing an imminent deadly threat, an Im imminent threat of death or great bodily harm before you can use deadly force, before you can pull out your gun and start doing that. So, but, but it is a bad situation to be in. You're stuck on the side of the road. You've got two small kids in the car. Right. And, and now you have multiple adversaries. I'm not going to call them attackers because they haven't attacked yet, right. but multiple adversaries. Where would you draw the line on, on what you can do to defend yourself here? Well, I think very clearly you're not going to have an ability to retreat, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's clearly what this, what Larry's scenario was, was uh, scripted for, is to paint a scenario where you, you're anchored, you're tied to your, your spot. You were on your X, so to speak. Well, you know, it, really, if, if you wanted to retreat, you have two kids. Choose the one with the most potential. <laughs> take that child and, and retreat. So <laughs> Choose the one that has the bigger Gerber's account yeah. and then keep rolling. Yeah. Um, just for the record, for any USCCA staffers watching, Kevin said that. I didn't say that, all right? Let's just be clear. Um, but otherwise, what we're talking about here is, okay, you really can't retreat, but just as Kevin kind of gave away is in the snippet, right, what's a threat, all right? And again, I'm not trying to attack you or beat you up, but a prosecutor will, a judge will, the cops will, and a jury might, all right? Don't say beat up and cops at the same time. Beat up, okay. Yeah. Um, we'll horizontally destabilize you. Right. How about that? Okay, <laughs> we'll, some, we'll get some cop lingo going here. Employed, uh, they will employ a defensive focus strike to your chest right. and guide you to the ground. To decentralize. To you. decentralize, right, right yeah. Um, side topic there, but at any rate. <laughs> so what is that threat? Is it a real threat? Because at the end of the day, if that threat doesn't arise to the level of creating that reasonable, uh, you know, imminent deadly threat of, uh, of great bodily harm or worse, then you're going to be in some trouble articulating why you started going John Wick on everybody. Um, we live in a society, unfortunately, where we have words like violence and threat uh, that get bandied around. You know, the, to me, those are top shelf words. But people use them for anything. Uh, it seems to me that, that they mm -hmm. use them and they overuse them and they misuse them a lot. 
So I, I, my back kind of gets up. And again, I'm not attacking you, Larry, at all. I'm just trying to put your focus on where the focus is because Lord knows that's what the prosecutor and, and law enforcement is going to be doing. Um, what did they say? Did they display a weapon? Did you order them to back off and they kept advancing? All these things are going to be the variables that are going to determine good shoot versus bad shoot. And, and remember the idea of preclusion. Shooting is the last thing that you want to do. It's not the last thing that you're going to do because you have to call 911 afterwards, but it's the last thing that you want to do in that situation. So if you can, can de-escalate or avoid it or some other way to get out of it without shooting, of course that's, that's what you want to do. But also remember, in this situation, I want somebody calling 911 as quickly as possible. Um, whether you're holding the gun in one hand and dialing 911 with the other, get on the phone with the dispatcher right away and let those folks know what's going on and then leave that line open so that, that all of what's going on is being recorded. Yeah, I'm, I'm not against leaving open 911 lines, but keep in mind, much like a tracer bullet, that goes both ways. In other yep. words, if you say or do the wrong thing, it's being recorded. You are talking to the judge, the jury, the newspaper, your spouse, your best friends, your employer, your in-laws. Everybody in the world is going to be listening to that 911 recording. So just keep that in mind. Um, but obviously, you got to survive the encounter while following the law. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So hope that was a good enough answer for you, Larry. That's a very complicated situation you presented us there. And it's just proof that you need training and a good attorney to get through all of this sort of stuff here. So next question up is, I understand that after a self-defense shooting, I will probably temporarily lose my firearm. Would the police also take my wife's concealed carry if she was only a witness to the shooting? Um, no, unless I need that gun for evidence, I can't take it away, you know. So if she didn't pull it out and start shooting at people, um, no, we're not going to take that gun as evidence. Law enforcement may not, but the court might. And here's what I mean by that. If you are actually going to be getting charged with any kind of offense, it's very likely, particularly here in Wisconsin, that if I use my firearm in self-defense and now I'm being charged with a crime as a result of it, a term and condition of my bail is going to be that I cannot possess any firearms or any other deadly weapons. Uh, your wife's handgun in the house on the nightstand might count. Uh, and again, mm -hmm. I'm not here to defend that. I'm just saying here's what it is. Okay, so that's where you have to have the conversation with your client as a defense attorney of look. You run into the wrong officer on the wrong day, and they're going to say that this isn't your spouse's gun, yet you had equal possession to it. Because at the end of the day, you cannot possess that firearm. And just because you never touched it doesn't mean you didn't legally possess it. So it is at best a gray area as to whether or not if you are subsequently charged with a crime and likely have that as a bail condition, uh, it's going to be a gray area, best case scenario, whether or not you can still have your wife's gun in the house. That does not mean that law enforcement will come and seize it or that she has to turn it into law enforcement. It might be, depending upon the laws in your state, that she can still keep it in the house. Maybe she just has to lock it up in a safe that you don't have access to, although that's always an, a bit of an eye-roll moment. <laughs> um, and then number three is you, know, you can give it to your best friend or you can give it to someone else as well, as long as you dispossess yourself of it. And again, no one here is defending that. I'm simply answering the question and explaining what that process can look like going down the legal road. Yeah, we're telling you folks what is, not what we think is right. We're yeah. telling you what's going to happen and, and what could possibly happen for you out there. So right. Bill wants to know if senior citizens have more leeway in using deadly force than in a self-defense situation. And, you know, Bill, I know some senior citizens who can do more push-ups than me, so I, I don't know if that guy gets to do uh, gets to use force sooner. But, again, this is a disparity of force question. It goes right to the attorney. Right, So, and we talked about this before, um, and uh, I think that this gets posted up. Max, correct me if I'm wrong. Once we're all done with this, it gets posted up to member dashboards. I'm getting literally a thumbs up, so that's probably yes. So, um, you know, I won't repeat everything we already went to, into before, Bill, when we talk about eggshell skull, we, we find our, our defendants, we find our, our folks, uh, and we have to treat them as the way we find them. But the gist to it is, look, if you are more easily able to get from A to B of, I cannot use deadly force to I can use deadly force because of a certain medical condition, whatever that might be, then yes, that's something that absolutely may be factored and should be factored into your case. Keep in mind, doesn't mean that law enforcement and the prosecutors may agree, however. So just keep all those things in, in place. And remember, document, 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 document. A jury is going to look at a medical condition much more favorably, much more believably, if it was documented by physicians, not like a note on the kitchen countertop on a napkin or something. My back hurt today. Right, my back hurt today, you know. <laughs> Dear diary. Um, 
they're going to they're gonna believe this a lot more if it's documented pre-incident with medical professionals as opposed to post-incident. Uh, it's just the reality. Next two questions appear to come from the same person, so we'll just lump them all together. What if my neighbor is being attacked on their property? Am I within my right to help if I am carrying? And what if I was at a red light, heard a scream for help? Through investigation, I see a guy assaulting his girlfriend. Mm. Can I intervene physically? Um, both of these, there's a lot of questions on the assaulting his girlfriend one down there. Um, both of these fall into that shark tank analogy. Um, Tommy, why do you want to get involved in this situation? That's the first question I'm going to ask you because as you do this, you are putting everything you have at risk. Your life, your possessions, your freedom, all of that stuff is, is being put at risk. So there needs to be a really good reason why you want to get involved in this situation beyond calling 911 and getting the, getting the cavalry rolling in that direction. So, And that doesn't mean that you can't jump into the shark tank, but at the end of the day, what Kevin's highlighting is you're putting everything on the line. So you have to be comfortable with that, with that reality that you are putting everything on the line. You're putting your future, your, to a very large degree, your spouse's, your kid's future, and on all that kind of stuff on the line in with you when you go ahead and you start making legal, in essence, legal decisions to use deadly force. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do, it just means that's the reality of the situation. So you always have to make sure that if you're gonna be using defensive others, you have gotta make sure who's, a, who's the attacker here. You keep in mind that if somebody disengages and reengages, those roles could arguably shift, and it doesn't mean yeah. that you caught the incident after it. Now presumably if you're seeing in your first scenario, uh, Tommy, where you saw the neighbor, presumably you know your neighbor and you've got at least a little bit of a measure of his or her character. Second scenario, much much bigger question mark. In fact, we were just mm -hmm. talking about possibly doing some upcoming videos actually on virtually this exact question. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a common one that we get. It's a tricky one that we get because everything always comes back to the layered context and nuances and everything else. So in general though, you're gonna to have to be able to articulate why that person was facing a deadly threat for you to use deadly force. And you've gotta watch engagement, disengagement, re-engagement, and the shark tank applies. Yeah, basically know what's going on before you get involved. Um, especially you're involved as a third party. You better know exactly what's happening because you're putting everything that you have on the line there. Right. So, All right, next up, Barry wants to know, how do you defend your choice of caliber and load for your concealed carry weapon? <laughs> Barry, I used to say, hey, would you let me shoot you with this? And if the person would say no, then I would say, well, then it must be an okay caliber. <laughs> um, I've gone away from that because it's much too violent and, and it puts me in a bad light. It's not too touchy-feely. Yeah. Now you know? I say... It's 2019. Yeah, now I say, if I was pointing this gun at you, would you shoot me with your gun? And if that's the case, then yes, th that's an effective, an effective caliber. Um, in all seriousness... Um, you know, the gun you have at the start of the gunfight is the gun that is going to be the best gun in the gunfight. Um, choosing one, you'll hear people say, choose the biggest caliber you can shoot accurately. Uh, other people will say, choose the gun that you can carry most comfortably, that you'll have with you at all times. Um, and, and more bullets are better than fewer bullets. And, and there's all sorts of a raging debate out there about, about what is the right caliber for self-defense. Um, in a class at the Force Science Institute I was taking, we found out that 90% of the people who, shot, who are shot with a pistol caliber um, uh, weapon continue doing what they were doing before they got shot. If they stop their actions, it is a psychological stop. No currently available self-defense self -defense pistol caliber has the energy needed to immediately facilitate an immediate cessation of hostile activity unless you hit somebody right in the central nervous system, through the brain or break the spine or something like that. So I don't really care what caliber of handgun you use, I want you to shoot it accurately and only use it when you are facing a deadly threat. Um, how I defend that is, you know, point out that in, in the biggest self-defense case that we have ever seen, you know, um, George Zimmerman was using a 380, and that's a caliber that most Great instructors say you should never use. That would be the minimum use, you know. And he fired one shot, and it was fatal. So um, the, what caliber you use is, is the caliber that you are most comfortable carrying every day and shooting with. That's, that's how I defend it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have much to add to that. Just very, very simply, if, and if a 9mm or 45 or 40 or whatever it might be, uh, if those are going to be too big for you to carry, too heavy for you to carry, 
then you want to carry the largest, highest capacity firearm uh, that is safe, fits you, that you can shoot accurately, quickly, uh, that you can and that you will. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my answer to the question. And keep in mind, again, we, we touched on this at the very top of the uh, Ask Me Anything, but just to reiterate it, the vast majority of people in the justice system are not firearms literate, okay? Or if they are, it's very minimally so. They are not sophisticated enough to know the difference between a 380 and a 38, let alone a 380 versus 9mm versus a 45 versus this or that. They're not familiar with these kind of gun form banter and this and that. And that's not to say that the gun form banter doesn't have a legitimate purpose or its place. I'm just saying that you're engaging, just by asking that question, you're already engaging at a very significant level. I'm more concerned about, uh, as we touched on before, you know, what's the marketing for that particular uh, caliber or that particular round that you're carrying? If they're saying it's the kill everything in one shot, uh, that might come back to haunt you. And I'm not saying it's fair, I'm just saying that's reality, that that might come back to haunt you if the prosecutor tries to introduce that as evidence for you at your trial. Uh, if you have all the, you know, the Punisher decals and so forth on your, on your firearm, that might come back to haunt you as far as showing, purportedly from the prosecutor's perspective, what your state of mind was at that particular moment, that you weren't trying to de-escalate incidents, escape a threat, you were trying to, you, you were hunting, you were prowling for, for somebody to kill uh, and, you know, rights aren't rights, you're just, you're just using it in this particular circumstance uh, as a license to kill. So mm -hmm. you have to be very careful about all those sorts of things, the messaging that you're sending. Yeah, in an ideal world, we want you to be an unwilling participant in these events. We don't want you going out looking for a fight. If the fight comes to you and you can't get away from it, Yes, then engage in the fight, but but don't go out there and, and uh, look for a fight. So mm -hmm. how deep of an online history usually happens after an active uh, self-defense in court? Well, the wording on this is all wrong because it sounds to me like there is a self-defense incident in the courtroom. But uh, I think what we're getting at is how far back do prosecutors look in your online history when you're involved in a self-defense incident? Yeah, um, and that person did attach a name, which is always a bit of a scary thing. So um, we'll just call him Max. Yeah. Yeah, Max, uh, asking yeah. for a friend. <laughs> asking, asking for, for a friend. friend. You know, yeah. Max from Wisconsin asks. Uh, um, so, I mean, look, there, there's no, this is what they always do, all right? What did this particular detective, this particular officer, how far back did they go? What apps, particularly if you're younger, do they look through all of your saved videos in Snapchat? Do they look through all your WhatsApp, your this, your Facebook messaging, on and on and on? A lot of people don't know this, but some apps will actually auto-report you based on certain words and behavior to law enforcement. Uh, Facebook Messenger is one that comes to mind where we have multiple clients at our office because Facebook contacted law enforcement because their search algorithms caught you saying certain words and certain things. So a lot of times these apps are spying on you, um, but you just have to be careful about what's out there. There's no, this is what always happens. Yeah, they could dig back 5, 10, 20 years, depending upon you know, what year your self-defense incident is happening in and when did you start your social media accounts. Uh, they can look at what have you been Googling. All this stuff is tracked. They can look to see where have you gone? What's your travel history? A lot of people don't know that when you carry your cell phone with you, oftentimes it's tracking all of your locations. So a knowledgeable officer can go in there and look to see, okay, uh, at uh, 2 o'clock on April 16th, uh, 2012, this person was at Walmart or whatever it might be. Sometimes your cell phones, depending on how the settings are set up, they can look through, they can reconstruct every single day. So just keep all that in mind, um, but there's no, this is what they always do or anything like that. It's all subject to this particular officer and this particular day in my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, just watch what you say and and generally be a good person. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's be nice. I mean, Professional that, that, advice. Yeah, that, that, will always, that will always help you out. What would um, mom say? Yeah, next question up, should you help an officer being attacked? Um, you know, this is going to fall into that depends, uh, you know, and again, how much do you want to risk? Um, if I was being attacked and I was losing the fight and getting my butt kicked, yeah, I'd want some help. Um, I'm, but remember that at that time, the officer doesn't know what you're doing. So make it very clear that, you know, I'm here to help you, Mr. Police Officer, not that you're jumping in and helping facilitate the attack against that officer. Um, again, these are one of those situations where, 
the more information you have, the better. And, and the officer has very limited information and is only thinking about one thing during that attack. Now he's got to think about another thing. Right. Um, so uh, there's, you know, from a, a departmental policy standpoint, yep, we don't want to have to put people in harm's way. We don't want to be liable for their actions if we're saying, yes, you should come help police officers. But it, I say that falls into the same category as are you going to help somebody else on the street? You know, you're a third party getting involved in this situation. And and we need more information than just help an officer being you know, attacked. So. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the advice I always got, you know, when I, was a, when I was a brand new prosecutor and we were going through a courthouse safety training by a very experienced SWAT team officer, uh, he said that, you know, look, if it looks like I'm losing and if you want to come in there and try to make a difference, I'm not going to stop you. If it looks like I'm dominating the guy, just stay out of it if you could. Like, let me, yeah. let me do my thing. But keep in mind that if you're in there and if you're on the ground, you know, wrestling, you're losing sight about what's going on around you. If you have a holstered firearm, how good of a retention do you actually have? Is that going to fall out? Is the bad guy going to grab it? Maybe the officer has excellent firearm retention. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. Keep in mind as well that hopefully that officer already radioed her backup and they're on their way. When that backup arrives, do they think that you're the good guy or the bad guy? So I'm not trying to talk you out of doing something. I'm not trying to talk you out of saving lives. I just want to get you thinking about all the different variables that are in place. Yeah, and, and understand this. When an officer is in a fight, the situation is already a mess. Things, things have gone bad um, when, it, when it finally gets to the point of, of fighting. So um, you're, you're wading into a situation that is bad. At least one gun is involved because the officer has one there. And, and uh, you need to think of all of those things, uh, um, what's going on right there. So right. Michael wants to know, what's the average response time? I thought he was thinking about police officers, but no, average response time for an attorney when you call on a self-defense shooting. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, 2.30 in the morning. 2.30 in the morning, rings. that call. <laughs> so a couple of different things. Number one, keep in mind what we talked about before in this, in this Ask Me Anything. Unlike what Hollywood shows, I can't just stroll into the jail, use my special lawyer key, and open up the, the cell to get you out of there. All right? Different states can be able to hold you for different amounts of time under investigation. They can detain you without charging you, and then... They can charge you without you getting a probable cause hearing or Riverside hearing or anything like that. In other words, uh, your opportunity for bail necessarily. So that could be you know three, four, five days, depending upon where you are, depending upon national holidays and a bunch of other different things. So you just have to understand that at the end of the day, the best criminal defense attorneys, any criminal defense attorneys, we're not miracle workers in the sense that uh, we're like Neo in the Matrix and I can break all the rules. What the best criminal defense attorneys we're going to do is we're going to take that deck of cards of all the different facts and nuances. We're going to spot the important cards that others might miss and we're able to put everything into play uh, to maximize the benefit to you, the advantage to you, uh, and to push back against those narratives that are out there. To directly answer your question about if you do call someone, it's going to depend on a bunch of different things. Uh, very few attorneys have 24-7 answering services. Uh, most of them, you're going to be leaving a voicemail in an office and fingers crossed that they bother to read it or check it the next morning. Most successful defense attorneys are going to be in court every single day, once, twice, three times a day. They may not even get into the office. You know, they've got an 8 o'clock court in some county that's an hour drive. They may not get into the office until lunch, maybe not even afterwards. If they're going from one county to the next county to the next county, they're not, they're not even be in that office the whole day. And so, if it's Wednesday, it's golf day. And so. if it's Wednesday, that's Fridays. Yeah. But, okay. but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's just true. It's just what it is. It's impossible for me to answer that question for you. We used to have, if you go back some years now, we used to have that the actual, um, our office line would forward directly to an attorney's real cell phone. And the office policy was that the attorney's cell phones were always on and we used to take 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. phone calls. Uh, I no longer do that. Here's why. You want to know what that really looks like for us? We're getting 3 a.m. phone calls from the guy who got convicted of a felony charge in 1995. And, you know, he's just curious about if he's got any appeal options. <laughs> and he wants to talk it over with you for an hour. Or, kid you not, here, here, yeah. here's another real one. Um, yeah, I'm watching Cops, and this is just what happened? Is that legal? That was, that was like a 4.30 a.m. phone call I got on a Tuesday morning wow. at one point. I would bill that person. 
They're not billable, <laughs> trust me. These people are bulletproof from a debt collection standpoint. But my point is this, is the fact that this is the reason why we had to implement these buffers, because unfortunately, these are the phone calls that we get, we get bombarded by. We can't practice law like this if we're up all night taking the Judge Judy phone calls, all right? Mm -hmm. So just understand that if you leave the message, if you leave the appropriate information, that with a good law firm, they're gonna be getting back to you ASAP. But it doesn't mean they're a bad law firm if it doesn't go immediately to the bat phone, so to speak, and you're talking to a live voice at 2.30 in the morning. If anything, that usually suggests to me that they probably don't have at least enough market traction yeah. to be getting the 4.30 a.m. cops and Judge Judy phone calls that we did. Yeah. So, you know who will help you 24 hours a day? The USCCA critical response team. So, your members, call us. We answer the phone 24 hours a day and we'll at least start the process for you. That's, that's why we're here. If you're involved in a self-defense incident, call the USCCA critical response team and get that ball rolling because you want that help as quickly as possible. But honestly, you know, lawyers work during a, a prescribed work day for the most part. So um, we have to deal with that stuff there. So Skip, as a longtime shooter and ammunition reloader, and he has that in, in quotation marks, so that he's an ironic ammunition reloader. Um, and being known for this, will this history perhaps have any effect on the after self-defense deadly force encounter situations? I don't know. Um, he reloads his training ammunition, but what ammunition were you putting in the gun? And, and, and is your attorney or the prosecutor smart enough to say, oh, he made even super deadly bullets or something like that? Um, right. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to have that much impact. They could try to drag it in. At the end of the day, the best thing you can do to protect yourself with is get the right training so you give your defense attorneys the best facts possible so that you don't even have to get to trial. Now, that's never always possible, don't get me wrong. Uh, but look, I've been in court when, um, same judge, different days, not my clients, I just was waiting for my own cases to get called. When the same judge on different days classified for all full metal jacket ammunition as military grade ammunition, <laughs> not for civilian use, same judge, it's like a month or two later, then classified all hollow point ammunition as cop killer bullets. Mm. There's no winning. All right, so. That guy needs a USCCA class. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're retired now, I guess is the only good thing I can say about that, but that doesn't mean that that sentiment isn't gonna be prevalent, isn't gonna be out there on the bench. Bench is what we just call where judges are, you know? The, the bar is where all the attorneys are, the bench is where all the judges are, right? Um, these are the attitudes, this is the uphill slog that you may encounter and that you and your defense team may encounter. The best thing you can do is give good facts, all right? I would much rather have somebody reloading all their own ammunition, but give me a crystal clear, great self-defense case than the person who's got the bone stock gun uh, and you know the right off the shelf, whatever brand, um, you know the, the most safe, safest mainstream vanilla marketing brand you can find who gave me a horrible fact. Yeah, kind fact of sketchy details right, exactly. and, and the way things are it all come, The facts come first. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's all about the facts. So um, looks like this is going to be our final question, but we'll go through it. So uh, Ronald wants to know if reducing the factory trigger pull by half, half, that's almost 50% on a Smith & Wesson revolver, will that be a negative evidence in a criminal self-defense trial? Um, I'm going to go from the, the technical gun nerd standpoint on here. If you're reducing your trigger weight by half, um, you're running the risk of having an unintentional, possibly negligent discharge. So I would suggest not to do that. And from a practical standpoint, you've got a Smith & Wesson revolver that's probably giving you, in a, the double action mode, maybe a 12-pound trigger pull. Even at 12 pounds, you can probably hit a 19 by 24-inch target, that's a human torso, at a distance of 3 to 5 yards by just pointing the gun out there, not even using the sights and pulling the trigger you can probably do that. You don't need to reduce your trigger weight by half to help you win a gunfight. If you reduce your trigger weight by half to help you win the bullseye competition at your shooting club, please don't carry that gun on the street because you might just shoot yourself. Sympathetic muscle responses and all the other things that come with stress are gonna cause you problems with that just from a practical and tactical standpoint. From a legal standpoint, well, not to you mention, know. are you going to get light primer strikes and, and failures yep. to fire and all the other kind of stuff too? But look, from a legal standpoint, again, if you gave great facts, great. Do your chances of giving great facts go down? 
Yeah, I mean, they do, all right? That's just the truth of the matter. So again, no one's attacking you by saying that, but your chances of giving us good facts go down. I think to your question of could a prosecutor or law enforcement try to leverage this somehow against you? Yes, they could. Uh, is that necessarily going to be the end of the world for the case? No, it won't. Again, if you've got good facts, that's what your defense team's going to be focusing the, the, the jury on at the end of the day is, look, you heard a bunch of noise about he modified this, he did this, he did that. At the end of the day, he woke up, two guys uh, were broken into his bedroom at 3 a.m., and he pulled out his firearm, uh, you know, from his, his uh, safe or, you know, mm -hmm. from his nightstand, and, and he shot one of them, and the other guy fled. Does the fact that you, that you modified your trigger or put in some sort of drop in aftermarket trigger, does that change any of those things? Probably not, right? Yeah, so. doesn't change the facts, but, but reducing your trigger weight by half really does change the, the technical specs of your gun, and it's not something I would recommend. So um, let's, let's leave that there. And, and Tom, as, as my therapist says, our, our time is up. <laughs> so um, thank you, folks, for being here. Uh, this is uh, your, is this monthly, Max? I don't even remember how often we do this. Your monthly Ask an Attorney webinar. As members of the USCCA, you get this kind of extra care absolutely free, but I'll let you tell folks sure. what you want them to do at the what end I of this webinar. Everybody down the lens. You get All homework. Right. So, some homework, but I promise it's reasonably painless. So something that really helps us do this, to deliver this content for our, our excellent members, is to help me out and to help out my team of attorneys, because obviously when I'm here, I'm not back at the office. So something that really helps us out uh, from the bottom of our hearts is just take a few moments, click that, that review Tom Grave or whatever the button's showing up as. It brings you to a link for our family, law, saw, uh, pardon, our family law firm, Divergent Family Law, it takes you just a few moments. Leave us, if you could, a five-star review. Um, and keep in mind, it's the internet of four stars as a failing grade. Uh, but guys, those five-star reviews really, really, really go a long way towards helping us out and therefore allowing us to be here. The majority of our attorneys at Grieve Law are criminal defense attorneys. We do have a separate wing just because, unfortunately, so many of our criminal cases do have a family law component to them. So this particular link today goes to the family law link. Even if you left reviews in the past, guys, this is a different link. So again, tremendously, 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 tremendously appreciated. Generic five-star reviews. We love it. I do read and reply to every single review. So looking forward to reading some of those comments as well. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that'd be great. And, you know, the same box is there for reviewing the USCCA uh, right on your member dashboard. So let us know what you think. Um, we're doing our best to give you the best information. We think we've earned your trust, and we're going to work hard to keep it. So thank you very much for being here, and we'll see you next month.